0: Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we
1: cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now, your hosts, Jason and Peely.
0: Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. Super excited for today's episode. We have Gary Holloway Jr. with us. Gary, how are you?
1: Good, Jason. Good morning.
0: So Gary is the president of GMH Capital Partners, the real estate investment operations and development subsidiary of GMH Associates. Gary draws on nearly 20 years of acquisition, commercial real estate property and asset management experience to oversee the company's current portfolio of real estate assets and research for multifamily investment opportunities, both domestically and internationally. Since its inception in 1985, GMH has completed more than eight million in transactions consisting of major property types, including conventional multifamily, student housing, and office throughout over 41 states. Wow, Gary, that's awesome. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming Thanks, on. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So you're currently calling us from one of your projects today, which are under construction on over 300-unit uh, de- multifamily development in uh, Pittsburgh. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. We're out in the uh, in one of the hot suburbs of Pittsburgh today, Cranberry Township. We're delivering. 320 apartment units. We've been CO'd. We're about 60% through our lease up. So we're excited.
0: Wow. What a project. Well, before we jump into that, do you remember the point in your career where you decided to take this step into real estate? And what was that pivotal moment?
1: It was easy for me, Jason. I grew up in a family business. So I'm the second generation in my father's company. But before that, my grandfather was a developer. So You know, a lot of history in the family and real estate. I always enjoyed it. I remember as a kid going out to see some of my dad's early projects. Um, He was an innovator in student housing, and we were doing some work in State College, Pennsylvania. So I remember being a little guy, going out, seeing the jobs, obviously a lot smaller at the time. Um, But, you know, really, I would say it was embedded in me early, and I think I had it in my blood. Um, I came to work for him, had a finance degree, Villanova, and I came to work for him right outside of school. So. Oh, I Gradu- graduated in the late nineties and here we are.
0: So a lot of people who are, who grew up in the family business, they, they tend to run the other way. Right. And so you have yeah. both, both mixed picture. What have you found have been some of the vital components and, and we'll, we could take this as partnership, but more as in family of just creating a, a viable partnership with, with your family.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I look at myself uh, as running a family office essentially. And my job is to place our capital in real estate. I have a brother who's also in the family business and he places VC capital. So uh, interesting dynamic in that my father grew up in a family real estate business and was one of 11. So uh, I owe a lot to my dad in that he realized the challenges and pitfalls of being in a family business. And he's really encouraged my brother and I to do our own thing. And of course, now we're midway through our careers, so it's a lot easier to do that. But even early on, he gave us a lot of space to sort of feel our way around and and, and get to where we are and I, I think i i couldn't have done it um if he hadn't been through his own family business you know up and down because having not done that we probably would have made a lot of the same pitfall mistakes that his family had had so you know family businesses are tough um you know if you can sort of last through those first couple of years of getting everybody onto the same page and of course there's legacy Type issues that come into play, but um, I'll tell you now, I don't, I don't look back. I mean, it's been phenomenal experience for me and for my brother. Wow, so incredible. And now, so your
0: brother and yourself, your dad, you're working together. How has it been to devise roles? Was it allocated from your father, or how did you guys come upon your roles?
1: It's pretty simple. I mean, my brother um taking on the vc world you know we sit on each other's investment committee but really that's about it i mean he's making his own investments he's running his business day to day and my sole responsibility is allocating family capital to real estate and we're totally vertical so that includes existing acquisitions it includes ground up construction uh, as well as some value add although we haven't been big in the value add space in quite a while just because i think it's a little bit overplayed but really i mean you know the, the barrier that exists between B.C. and real estate is a natural barrier for us, and we're both just enabled to, to run our business day-to-day, and we treat him as the family office, the capital stack, so you will. So um, We go to the bank when we need money, and you know he weighs in on those decisions. Uh, generally, his approach is, come to me at this point in your career when you think you need me which uh, I like getting advice, especially on, on big decisions. It's great to have that sounding board and have a mentor that can uh, weigh in, but he's not overbearing at this point at all. I I would say that's been the last five to 10 years where he's really cut me loose to do what I want to do and uh, is there to help make decisions, but isn't, isn't driving an agenda. Incredible. And
0: can we talk to your business model and business philosophy and and maybe if, possible can we use the, the project you're sitting on right now so why why did you decide in this opportunity where, where was the point that you this was a good direction for your company to go uh, and what is the ultimate outcome with the project
1: sure so we're PA based, but on the other side so we're East Coast um, you know Eagles versus Steelers uh, but really we got driven to Pittsburgh as, as just a, a play on rates and a play on construction costs and a play on an alternative to the inflated cost structure and rent structure in Philadelphia at the time. Pittsburgh had bad rap, you know, after the steel industry ran away um, and they had great education here with the colleges. So they were trying to figure ways to keep people embedded in the Pittsburgh market. And over the last 10 years, they've succeeded with that. They're big on technology. Uber here, Um, you know, self-driving car has been developed here. Um, Google's got a presence here so there has been this sort of uh, convergence on Pittsburgh that we got in on really early our business philosophy simple Um, we like to develop because we're after yield but we also like to buy existing products for cash flow and as a family office we try and merge the two and it's kind of interesting if you look at where a value-add play would be it's probably in the middle of the two in terms of returns Um, So we find that if we're constantly developing and acquiring newer product, we're sort of ending up at that mid-level team return that we're looking for anyway. So Pittsburgh played in perfect in that we made our first investment downtown. We bought two sort of iconic buildings downtown that were already developed. And then we followed that with two construction projects. One was 375 units. And then the one I'm sitting in today was 320 units.
0: So and if you're looking at the size of projects, just noting with what you're focusing on between yield and having that split between new construction and buying for cash flow to, to hit that median return, is there a size of project to meet those metrics that you have to go after to be able to incorporate that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so being where we are in our cycle and we self-manage and we're, like I said, fully vertical, um, I think about 100 units makes sense for us. Now, of course, we can do smaller deals if they're big boy deals. Like if you're in a market that's, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a unit, they might be lucrative. But for me, I want to give our same level of service on every acquisition that we do. So that means from a management standpoint, I want a fully staffed team. I want to have a GM. I want to have a leasing staff. I want to have a full maintenance team. I want to deliver what we, we promised to deliver to our residents and deliver that same experience. So for me, Jason, I can't make it work, generally speaking, under hundred units um, on the development side, I would tell you that we'd like to be over 150 units by the time you mobilize your your team. Um, someone taught me very early, early on that the big boy deals are just as much work as the small deals, and if you can get access to capital to do the big boy deals, you're going to spend just as much time on them, and sometimes I would say even less time because you're dealing with sophisticated investors, sophisticated lenders, and when you bring a bigger deal to the table. They've been in your shoes before and know how to navigate the waters versus if you're doing a smaller deal, people are sort of learning on your watch.
0: That's a great point, right? So if you're buying 10 units, you're buying a hundred units, it's generally the same work and it gets the
1: Same thing. We yeah. all put our pants on the same way. It's just a yeah. different capital stack, really. I love that. So
0: talking to maybe development in general when you're looking at multifamily, is there is there a I'm not going to say just a bread and butter way, but is there a core focus for how much you can allocate to land to how much you're looking to build for, you know, construction cost uh, for the project to make sense?
1: Yeah. You know what? Every market's different. Obviously, you've got real estate taxes that come into play. So you can afford obviously to pay a little more on counties that aren't reassessing you and that are sort of working with you. Um, Cause really what, what does it come down to real estate taxes, and utilities are too busy expenses, right? Obviously, you have your people to run the project, but when you're just looking at the fixed costs, those are it. So if you get into a municipality that does have a more favorable tax structure on that real estate side, and we're all talking about all the different tax incentives that are out there now, we're talking about real estate abatements, this Pittsburgh market is a great example in that they had a 10-year abatement on both jobs that we built, and that over time, real estate taxes come back in generally i'd say it's a 20 to 30 percent max on the ground though i mean if you're looking for just a really high level metric
0: sure no and i appreciate that And now looking that you've been across 41 states now how are you Lewin, to be able to go into so many states and be
1: productive with your outcome yeah so it's interesting we've talked a little bit about pittsburgh and that's conventional for us all of our growth historically was really fueled in student housing And student housing is such an interesting dynamic. You can drop in uh, to different markets because you're studying a university's, uh, you know, I guess, economics. You're studying, we like to look at, you know, bed ratios, how much they have on campus versus how much is in the third-party market. We study all those metrics and we have a whole checklist that we go through. So it's a lot easier for me to parachute in to a university market than it it is to say, you know, L.A., where I'm just going to build a... Uh, conventional uh, property like LA, New York, San Francisco, I'd have no business dropping in there without a presence day to day to build a conventional multifamily. Now, if you take it to San Luis Obispo, for example, we're building um, three projects off of Cal Poly's campus right now. I just need to know the school dynamics. I don't need to be the local guru who knows every cost structure and every uh, rent dynamic in the market and who's doing what I need to know the school in and out. And I need to know the supply and demand factors for the school. And then, of course, I need to figure out what I can build it for. But that's what's enabled us, Jason, to go national. I mean, right now, I'm proud to say we're building as far north in California as Sacramento for Sac State. And we're building as far west as Providence for Brown. So we really are covering the whole, whole country right now. Awesome.
0: And looking at student housing, just could you give us some of the metrics that are very important for you when, when deciding to go into an opportunity? Yeah, it's
1: big time capture rate. I mean, so for example, if it's a school of 50,000, I don't want a school that houses 25,000 on campus. That would never happen. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I want to keep the capture rate to under 5%. So, you know, I really want to, if if we just do simple math, it was a thousand uh, unit, you know, uh, or thousand person school. I want to be under 5% capture rate on that. So, um, I get nervous when you start seeing capture rates up over 10%. Now, every school is different. If you get into brand name Ivy schools, their whole mission is to house everyone on campus. So Brown was a little different, right? Um, their housing, I think all three classes now, and really the only ones that can go off are seniors and postgraduate work. So that's who we're targeting. They have a need for uh, med students and some of their you know, doctor programs. So they really um wanted us to focus our project on attracting that so we're building it more of a conventional unit mix as opposed to a student unit mix which means we're not building four bedroom units we're building two and one bedroom units. interesting and if you're
0: looking now at your success in this field do universities now at any point reach out to you to to piggyback on what other successful projects have happened at other universities. Does that start happening at this point?
1: Absolutely. The the university game changed about 10 years ago and they're privatizing. Most of the big institutions have privatized already and they're realizing that they're better off educating and folks like us are better better off housing. And you know it, it's no different than the government realized that they were better privatizing military housing. If you look back under Clinton's administration he privatized all the um, housing on military base, all the family housing. And he realized that the government couldn't do it as well as a private, private outfit. Could.
0: I love that. And for someone who, who has not done development at this point and, and is looking that this would be a viable option for them, maybe they have a construction background or they have a good team component, what would be a good starting point? Where would they start this process and whether it's on the learning side or the action side?
1: Yeah, in terms of student housing, you mean? Uh, let's think student. let I mean, student housing, I'd say, would be number one studying the market. You've you got to know all the demographics. Is the school growing enrollment? Are there divisions of the school that are hot? Like, you want to be in the sectors, right? Like, engineering is big right now. You don't want to be in a sector that's sort of dying by the wayside. i struggled struggle to find that example. I'm not an a- academic, but I'm sure there's plenty of institutions that have dying majors, right? You don't want to find yourself um, in a school that's not pursuing the, the best majors. Texas A&M, for example, they had this whole thing where they wanted to put 20,000 uh, more students in their engineering program by 2020. And they're on target to do that. That's a great stat to know. So it's really studying, taking interviews with the university early on, trying to make sure that they realize you're going to be a partner and an ally to them because everybody, you're going to tour a university, mom and dad want to see new housing stuff. Yeah. So if the university's on board for that and realizes it, they can be your biggest ally. And they'll generally open up books and let you see sort of inside what's going on. Here's where we project enrollment growth. Here's where we project our new housing supply to be. The, the, the thing you don't want to find out is, okay, they're building 10,000 beds on campus to modernize their own. Campus now, if they privatize it, obviously that's a good thing. But if they're just doing it on their own balance sheet, and you're trying to come in and build off campus, that can really hurt you. So I would say studying the school, knowing the school, knowing their growth, um, knowing where students are coming from. Is it a commuter school? Obviously, it's a basic question. Or is it a school where where you're going to live there for all four years? You don't want to come in and build the new project and find out half the population is commuting on a daily basis. So those are the real basics. I would say knowing it, and then. Once you get into actually taking a project vertical, um, I'd highly recommend getting with a good GC and not doing it yourself. We, we pride ourselves on being good CMs, good construction managers. We don't GC anything anymore. We did that in the 90s, got burned a few times. Um, you need to have access to labor. You need to have access to the subs. And if you're coming in as an out-of-towner, that's a hard thing to do
0: what is some of the core components you're looking for in a, in a GC when you're sizing them up to take on a project of this scope?
1: I, I would say bonding capacity. Um, you know, I don't always choose to bond our jobs. We'll bond over the big subs. So for example, if you have, um, a concrete, you know, uh, job that's uh, 10% of your, of your, uh, total build. Like you're building in this, this job I'm sitting on today has a wrap uh, garage. So, the buildings are generally wood-framed. Some of them aren't, but the majority are wood-framed, but then we have an integral parking garage that is uh, in the center of the project. That's a big item that someone could make a mistake on. So I want to make sure that if I pick the right GC that they can at least bond over that item. And then it's up for us to choose whether we think we need to bond that item or not. Usually we'll make the decision, as bids come in If take drywall, for example, if there's a drywall sub that's a million dollars lower than everybody else, but you feel like compelled to go with them and give them a shot. I'm probably going to bond that some. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, so, so it's knowing that your GC has the bonding capacity. It's knowing that it's not the first rodeo for your GC. It's knowing t- today. I don't know if you follow Mike Rowe at all, um, but Mike Rowe has excellent points on the state of our labor force. You know, everybody wants a four-year degree. Everybody wants to go into finance. Everybody wants to do all the things you and I are talking about right now. Yep. But the reality is. There's a great living to be made in the trades in, in this country. And one of the reasons our construction costs have ballooned so high is we don't have good tradesmen anymore. We need good trade people. Um, and, and that has sort of gone away. And it's, it's funny because we were the melting pot, right? If, if you were an Italian immigrant, you were known as being a great mason. You know, um, other, other, other different nationalities had other trades that they were known for. Um, my, my brother-in-law is up in Boston right now and he's a union plumber and he's making more than he ever would first year out of college. Wow. And you know, that's important to hold on to. If you're someone that wants to follow that, not everybody has to go to college, which is, is, I guess where I'm going with this. And what's important back to your, your question on the GC is that they have access to all those subs because labor is what's going to kill you in today's world. We're trying to get a job off the ground in Reno right now. And Reno's meets all the demographics for the university. We're worried that we're not going to have the sub pool to get it done. The GCs are quoting us 24 to 26 months on a job that if I was building it in a market that we've already developed, I know it should take 20 months. Wow. And the, the reason being is we're just worried about the sub labor pool. Wow.
0: Yeah. a funny side note there. And uh, thank you for that. So we we have a family construction business, heavy construction. I was actually on dirty jobs about 13, 14 years. Oh, that's awesome. Moving a building and he uh, came and uh, helped out my dad would do the whole project. So he was there. So great guy. Yeah, actually. Incredible, so yeah, but yeah, it's great feedback and great points, and your point about scarcity of workforce that wants to do the work, it can never be more prevalent about what's happening out there, right? Everybody wants to have the idea, but nobody one wants to actually get out there and get the idea
1: done, so oh, it's crazy, Jason yeah. I mean markets like California, anywhere up in the northeast, it is so hard to make your numbers right now, yeah um, it's just gotten crazy
0: yeah, it's incredible for that, and now just. For these projects, your folks and I I just had one question that popped in my mind. When building a student development project, is there a certain uh, distance you have to remain to campus um, on average to make it make sense?
1: It's a great question. So early on, um, when I came to work for my dad, we were buying product that was two to three miles from campus. And the reason being was the rent structure hadn't proven out yet to where you could afford to buy a product closer in. The general rule of thumb is sites that were in, let's say, under a mile proximity to campus, were more expensive, right? Because most of the time when you're building at these big state institutions, that's what you have. Like if you go up to State College, Pennsylvania, it's Penn State, that's what you're there for. So naturally, it's all about location and the, the closer in locations were the ones that were more expensive. So you couldn't make numbers work. So in the 90s, our portfolio probably on average was a mile and a half to two miles from campus. Today, we're 0.5 miles from campus, and they're generally vertical construction. So what I mean by that for for the viewers out there is we're not building stick built projects anymore. We're building vertical construction off campus that's under 0.5 miles. And the only reason we're able to do that is the rent structure is proven out. So where it gets a little scary is you're going after that top 20% demographic at the university that can afford those rents. But you're really serving a market that went underserved for quite some time. And then, of course, you have the older projects from the 90s, which is kind of crazy to consider student housing old at 90s, but, it, but it's the truth. Um, that is, that's garden-style product that may be two to three miles out. But now it's, I mean, so yeah, we're looking, um, generally our metrics are we want to be that top-tier location in to the market. Um, we're going to go vertical in construction, so that means we want to be under 0.5 miles, if not 0.1 miles, I and mean, we have a lot of projects that it's a hop, st- skip, and a jump from campus. We call it roll out of bed, and you're in the academic core. Um, so that's a cool metric for us. We want to know that you can roll out of bed and be in the academic core.
0: Looking at your your business model, do, is your intent, and for GMH, do you hold for the long term? or Do any of these projects that at some point you look to sell, or, or are these all just made to keep
1: continually grow your portfolio? It's a great question. So any of these assets that we buy existing, they're 10-year hold. So we're putting longer term debt there for cash flow. And that's really what keeps us afloat in terms of the management operation, having the big uh, engine that we have in terms of employees. And then the development deals, you want to stop that, that yield as soon as you can, right? Because as a developer, you're get generally getting promoted over some, some return. So um, it's higher octane money. That means you want to recycle it in that three to five year time frame. Three, three is ideal because you wanna shut the waterfall down as early as you can, and you wanna get the investor paid back as early as you can, and stop that high, high octane kind of return. And that's what they want too. They want their capital recycled to put it back out to other other projects. Incredible.
0: Looking at your model, where, where does the next five years look like for you? You have so many projects in the works. Is there, are you staying in the same space, or you, you have your fewers out to move into different spaces?
1: Yes, so student housing, I think, will continue to evolve. Um, it's interesting. We we're talking about it on the flight out here. Um, the whole leasing game has changed. So we're constantly looking at what is technology doing to our product and how do we have to evolve to stay up with, with this younger generation? I mean, I hate to say because I'm 41 now, so it doesn't feel like I'm that far out of it, but I'm, I'm generally pretty far out of how kids were leasing. I mean, when we opened a project about five years ago, we realized – that the whole market had shifted. Our leases got done between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So that's far different than the old school way of doing things and having a leasing agent on site and being open from nine to five. So I think the space will continue to evolve. We need to be ahead of that curve. We also need to be ahead of where, where do people wanna go in terms of transitioning from these highly amenitized properties and then realizing they're not on mom and dad's dime anymore and have to roll out into their own own, own project. And that's something we're constantly t- trying to study. There's a lot of talk on these micro-units. I don't know if you focus on that, but we're developing some units now that are three to 400 square feet. And the idea there is it's affordable, but you still live big. So you have all the amenities you're looking for in a large project, but you're paying rent on a much smaller space. So it might be high per foot, but they're worried about the all-in coupon rate and it, it's, held relatively low well by the size of the project, but then you have access to being in a good transit center or being in an urban environment and having a bunch of amenities. So I guess we're constantly looking for ways to evolve. We're trying to stay on top of trends, realizing that you don't have to build a 1,000-square-foot, you know, uh, one-bedroom unit anymore. You can go down to three or 400 feet. Uh, we're trying to really dig into renters by choice. I don't know if you've heard that term, but renters by choice as opposed to renters by design.
0: Interesting. I love that. Right. So the, the intent that people are going to not be in their apartments as much anymore, but it's not their home base and they're going to be out there doing things that so they have any access where they just need a small space to put their head down. They're going to go out there and have so many amenities at reach because they're able to pay less, even though it's more per square foot. That's, that's great. Thank yeah. You.
1: And then just not realizing that they don't want to be a homeowner, right? It, it's, we got into this fad, which got us into the, the financial crisis where we thought the whole country had to own their own home. So what happened? We let we let it run up. I mean, we've all read the history books. We let it run up to seventy plus percent home ownership. That was unheard of, you know, and, and that that didn't need to happen. There's plenty of people that don't want to be homeowners, don't need to be homeowners, and are perfectly comfortable being renters and they, they're choosing to be renters as opposed to doing it out of necessity. So this has been awesome. I appreciate
0: your time. And as we we wrap this up, is there is there a core focus to your day or or a Process to your day that allows you to be most productive.
1: Jason, back to uh, your comment about your lovely wife and and being inundated with the three kids. My day starts with where the heck my kids need to be. I mean, it's as simple as that. I it, I looked at you know I look at them every morning. I look at my wife and I say, "Who's got to be where? What what's the what's the schedule? Are you working today?" She's still she's still working two days a week in the hospital system. She's a, a cardiac PT. So, um, you know, our day starts pretty crazy. Yep. If I'm lucky, I get, a, I get about 45 minutes in on my Peloton. That's been my, like, sanctuary. Yep. Uh, so I'd say my typical day, three, four days a week, is on the Peloton. Then I'm rushing kids to school. And then I'm trying to get in the office at a decent time, like 8:30 9 o'clock. But my days tend to um, have sort of elongated to where I'm not in as early anymore, uh, matching up with the kids. Like A good example today I knew I was going to be traveling so yesterday I made it a point to get up earlier, have breakfast with the kids, do all that kind of stuff cuz I knew I wasn't going to get time with them in the afternoon. So I would say as most uh, people would say in our age bracket that my wife my wife and my life revolves around our kids at this point.
0: I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And last question is for I have two more actually. So so for someone who's new to real estate and looking at all you've accomplished over these years, and maybe their head's spinning at this point, what would be one piece of advice you can give them if they are just looking to really get their groundwork, if they see the potential you can have in real estate? What should be the actual step should be?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd say bring passion to whatever you do in life. It doesn't matter. We talked about Mike Rowe. If you, if you aspire to be a plumber and a tradesman, bring passion to it. Maybe maybe you don't even aspire to own your own plumbing Company. It doesn't mean you can't have a successful career and make money as a plumber, right? So I would say bring passion to it. If you really want to get into real estate, that's like, uh, I mean, that's what your show's all about, right? It's, try, it's trying to figure out which avenue to take. There are so many aspects of real estate that you can get involved with, yeah. and it's not just one small box. If you want to get in the institutional side, then you do need some formal education, right? You need to have finance degree, you need to have that sort of formal training. If you want to get into uh, invest investing on in your own account, it's a lot simpler, to be honest with you. And, and I think you can focus on that. that. So I would just say, I mean, I know this is really broad, but bring passion in whatever you want to do. Talk to people on the commercial side. Talk to people on the residential side. I started my career as a leasing agent in retail. Gotcha. I, hate, I hated it. I didn't want to do it. I mean, I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I know I also didn't want to crunch numbers. I like doing what i 'm doing today, being out in the field, checking job sites, you know bringing equity and debt together to to do larger transactions. So I was really captivated by the large big boy transactions, and that 's what got me into the space and got me really excited about the space.
0: I love it. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. a great show. Thanks so much for coming on. you know having passion for your outcome. Really, just great advice. And if listeners want to learn more about you, uh, reach out and say hello. What's the best way to find out more?
1: Yeah, I would say our website, gmhcp.com, is, is a great place to start. Uh, from there, you can get into our student housing division or get into our conventional multifamily division.
0: Awesome. Well, Gary, thanks so much for coming on. I really I learned a ton. Listeners are going to learn a ton. Jason, anytime,
1: if you ever want to connect, feel free to reach out. I appreciate it.
0: Well, this is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast. Really appreciate Gary Holloway Jr. for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for checking out. We'll talk to you shortly. Bye now. Thanks, Jason.
1: Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation Podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.